Hey, Edge of the Couch listeners, it's Jordan here. I'd like to take a moment to talk about Jane, our show sponsor who helped make this episode possible. Jane is a practice management software built for every kind of mental health practitioner, thoughtfully designed with your clients in mind. Jane makes it convenient to meet with individuals, couples, or families, whether that's online via Jane's telehealth options or in person. Telehealth is also completely integrated with Jane, so you won't need any extra software to run your sessions, and your clients can join join a call directly from their browser. And Jane's group management features are a helpful way for you to manage your related clients such as couples and families. You can copy notes between related clients in the same session and invoice a group appointment to a single client. If you're curious to see Jane in action, head to jane.app/mentalhealth to book a one-on-one demo. You can also use the code EDGECOUCH1MO at sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. We love Jane so much. Thank you, Jane. Welcome to Season 5 of Edge of the Couch. We are here to create a space to delve into the topics that were either shied away from or dismissed because they were too big, too nuanced, too risky, or too uncomfortable to talk about in school or even supervision. Edge of the Couch is not training or supervision. It is for student therapists, new therapists, and therapists wanting to continue to explore their evolving therapist identities and ways of working. When we are talking about clients, please know we are deeply committed to protecting client confidentiality. We are too passionate therapists and good friends sharing our personal opinions about the therapeutic process. Come join us at the edge of the couch. Hey everyone, welcome back to Edge of the Couch. I'm Jordan Pickell. And I'm Allison McCleary. And today we have an episode it's not really a listener request, so we're sort of breaking the true. theme of the season. But Allison's wanted to do this episode since we began, there. Yes. I think, the podcast. Yes, I think so. And I always hear it. I'm like, okay, to me, it doesn't <laughs> seem like that much to talk about. But as she finally convinced me, today we're going to do it. And as we started talking about it, I was like, okay, there's there's actually a lot here. Today we're talking about bad therapists. And Mm -hmm. I think the reason why it didn't really res that topic didn't originally resonate with me is because it feels very obvious to me. It feels very obvious what bad therapy is and like, why do we need to talk about it? Because to me, it's pretty clear when things are egregiously bad. But lately, there's more of this movement and we're part of that movement in the therapy world about therapists being human making mistakes. We can show up in so many different ways. It's not like the quote unquote professional way of doing it and that there's so much more flexibility in being a therapist. And yet some of the language around there, I'm I think we're starting to have responses of like, ooh, but it's not just everything's okay. It's not just we're all bad therapists, so it doesn't matter. We're in a cultural moment in the therapy world for us to have a conversation about, okay, bad therapy does exist, and yes. let's talk about what that looks like. I feel very validated that we're finally having the conversation. I'm looking forward to it. And I think so similarly to many of the other episodes from this season, maybe we don't land on a fully definitive thing, but I think what we're saying is that we do believe bad therapists exist. We do believe bad therapy exists. And that's quite definitive for us. 
and that therapists who are good therapists make mistakes and can still be leaning into their humanness. I think we're really speaking to the messiness of it while also acknowledging that there are therapists who cause a great deal of harm to their clients. For those clients, I think it's important that as therapists, we acknowledge that there are bad therapists doing bad therapy that is hurting their clients. Um, Because my worry is to not do so is like invalidating to the people who've been harmed by our profession. Yeah. 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 There's absolutely harm being done, especially, I mean, we're talking about in the age of better help. We're talking about therapists on social media. Like there are ways, it's just more out in the world. So many more people are accessing therapy and talking about their therapeutic experiences that it's just becoming so much more obvious. I think another underlying maybe assumption that I want to share here is that there are many different types of good therapists and that it's not just the spectrum between bad therapists and good therapists and perfect therapists. Like there's so many different like fit is really important and that you could have a really great CBT therapist and a really great existential therapist, even though, you know, you and I value a certain type of work than others. There's ones that cause harm, ones that get in the way of client growth, ones that, I mean, we're going to talk about all the different types of uh, therapists that are bad, but there's also a lot of different types of good therapists. I agree. And I think my worry, maybe I want to name it before we dive in, of talking about this is that my worry is that we're going to scare people into like, oh no, what if I'm a bad therapist? And maybe we are going to name something that you have done before. Mm-hmm. And that does suck. And I certainly have been there where people were, where I've acknowledged that a behavior I was doing was like not good. And this is our invitation to hold ourselves accountable. I loved what you said earlier, Jordan, often in private practice, like there is no one else holding us accountable except ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we have to be really paying attention to our behavior so that we can be good therapists and practice good therapy. So if you're anxious in hearing this, we hope that there's invitation to like hear the message and the messiness and the nuance of like what I think is a very charged topic. We make mistakes that are objectively bad. Yes. (laughs) That doesn't have to mean that we're a bad therapist, though by saying there are types of bad therapy. I think it brings weight to yeah. we can make really bad mistakes. And then there are therapists who make mistakes and they really don't care. Like they right. absolve themselves from the mistakes. They say, oh, well, I'm a therapist. I'm human. And while I think that that can be a great antidote to people who feel a lot of shame about the mistake that they've made as a therapist and have, find it hard to move on, I think there are therapists who make these mistakes and they really don't reflect back. They don't care. And that's what makes a bad therapist. Yeah. And I, and I think when, when I think about a bad therapist, I'm not really thinking about therapists who make like one minor mistake, even if it is bad. I'm thinking about the therapists who have pattern of behavior and and a way of showing up that is consistently bad for their clients. Like you're saying, they're doing these behaviors and they're they don't, they're not self-reflecting to ask, like, is this okay? Am I hurting my clients? It's not just the behavior. It's our response to the behavior that I think can help us gauge whether we're doing something that is good or bad. And even the language is really hard because it's like, what does good mean? What does bad mean? But I think it's helpful that we be kind of that concrete in that language. There is so much more gray. And yet I think we can get lost in the grayness of like, but it's okay because it's gray. And instead of going, there are objective mistakes, 
that I made mm-hmm. that I have fallen into. Like we'll talk about some of the mistakes that I've made and sometimes continue to make, but then I'm really trying to do better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really trying to notice when I'm bumping up against this thing that I tend to do, whether it's violating boundaries. Some of these things come from care. People really think that they're helping people by doing these egregious, what we see as mistakes and maybe not even like they're not even looking at it as a mistake. They just have this sense of like, oh, I'm a therapist and I'm doing it. Therefore, it's fine. Really messed up things that therapists have done have been hidden under this veil of like, but it's ultimately good for my client. Right. And that that is a problem that we need to be addressing as a field. I think about the really gross ways that therapists justify sexual relationships with their clients, right? That there's like this narrative in there, like we're two adults and, you know, people fall in love. They needed to heal their parent wound. And this was part of that. And I think that's really gross when we are really, I don't know what that is, like just not able to see how we may ultimately be hurting our client, even though temporarily it might look good. And the client might not say that it's a mistake. Again, there's a power difference where clients may not talk about who's holding us accountable. Our clients don't hold, hold us accountable. They don't, they don't know. Point out, they don't know or they know, but the power difference makes it that sure. they're not going to speak back to something that you've done. On spaces like TikTok and Instagram right now, I think we're seeing a lot of like, you're a human as a therapist, mistakes happen, which we agree with. We mm-hmm. fundamentally agree with that. And then over in some other spaces, places like Twitter and Reddit, we're seeing a bit more of the like, hey, this is what my therapist did to me. And it really messed me up. Mm-hmm. Or my therapist has done this a couple of times. Is this okay? I don't know if I should make a complaint or not. I do think the spaces that you occupy will have an impact on the narrative that you're hearing right now about therapists. Yeah. And it's it can be very confusing, I think, as a new therapist. You are in a place of imposter syndrome where you feel yeah. like a bad therapist yeah. and you are afraid of making mistakes. I have this wanting to protect yeah. listeners from having shame. And I know that as I've gone into practice, I am an objectively better therapist than I was when I started. Yes. Like I make fewer mistakes now than I did yes. then. And so it's not this gray of, well, now that I've graduated, I'm human and I make mistakes. It's like, no, I've actually gotten better and I've done less harm over time because yeah. I've reflected and held myself accountable and gone to supervision and talked to my yes. colleagues and friends about how I'm showing up as a therapist and had people call me out, call me in. When I hear the stories often that new therapists are telling me, I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. I think a lot of new therapists have a ton of shame over what I would consider very minor things. But then there are some times where I'm like, that's a big mistake that you made. Mm -hmm. That is actually like something that needs to be rectified with your client. And it might not be able to be. So a huge percentage of the stuff that new therapists come to me with is not the stuff we're talking about. And then sometimes it is. And how do we encourage new therapists to hold all of that? Like the fear, which is so makes so much sense of like, I don't want to be a bad therapist. I don't want to make mistakes. And then the like hyper focus on what are actually minor mistakes. And then how do we shift into like, what is actually a mistake 
that may, would constitute kind of bad therapy. And I think our lenses become more refined the longer we're in it. So we can spot mistakes more readily and prevent them then moving forward. What would be helpful to me to mm-hmm. organize this conversation is maybe starting at the most egregious mistakes and yeah. then talk about mistakes that or bad therapists or therapy that may on the surface feel like it's okay. And we're sure. saying you can be causing harm, like significant harm to clients. And that is something to look at. I want to preface by saying this is not an exhaustive list. We are going to name some very specific things, but we are not going to name every um, good or bad thing that a therapist does. I like the idea of like having a bit of category so that you, the listener, know what we mean when we say bad therapy, because it can be like, what does it even mean? Let's start with the most egregious. So the most egregious, I think, is abusive. So sexually abusive, financial abuse, I think is a big one. Homophobic. Sure. Yeah. Conversion therapy is abusive a hundred percent of the time. I don't care. I don't care what your argument is. Conversion therapy is abuse. Yeah. So abusive therapy is obviously the, the worst, the worst of the worst. Like you said, some people, even that therapists can try to justify it for themselves. Yeah. And when I think about um, if, if any of you are listening from BC and where the push for a, a regulated college in BC has come from is one individual person. She has really been pushing it where she was completely manipulated by her therapist into a sexual relationship that was ongoing for many years in which this therapist like entwined themselves into her life. And she could not see how dangerous and damaging it was until the tail end of it. And then has been pushing so hard for a regulation around that because there was no, there was nothing she could do to get, you know, accountability from her therapist. And it's like shit like that, where I'm like, that is so gross to me. And it was a feminist therapist. So, yes. And a woman, a feminist, a woman, a feminist therapist who was, for example, bartering uh, services for services. So, yeah, client was asked to like paint their house and, and doing things around the yard and things like that. And it's, it comes from this idea of like, yeah, some people can't pay for therapy. And so let's, do this bartering system, but it's so easily can tip into now this person. I mean, if you, where's that one podcast that ended up being a TV show of the client who was like doing all this yard work for their therapist? I can't watch shows it's, that are about therapy. I think it's like Apple. It's on Apple. I never actually watched it, but the podcast is really good. Oh, uh, Therapist Next Door. Oh yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, the bartering system is one way in which financial abuse can happen. And therapists might think that at at the beginning, they might not realize that it's abuse. And then they just get the client and therapist get wrapped up in the situation that another person looks at that situation. They're like, that's abuse. Yeah. And I think if you've ever done the BCACC ethics training, the bartering is one of the one of the examples I give because of why it can seem so innocent on the surface. And then it can get so messy because what if their labor doesn't seem worth as much as your hour? And what if they run out of stuff to barter? And then what happens? And yeah, just leave bartering off the table, I think, um, if you want to feel like you're doing good therapy and you're being safe with your clients. One step below that is just general boundary crossing that isn't sexual. Maybe breaking confidentiality. um, Hanging out with your clients in non-therapeutic settings, driving them home. I don't know. Again, it's like 
we're looking for patterns here, not individual experiences. But yeah, playing it fast and loose with the dual relationship ethics. I think that's part of what makes the difference is the felt difference of playing it fast and loose. Like no consideration. Yes, no consideration. Sometimes it's like weighing the things like this person doesn't have a ride home. Yes. And, and they're 14 and it's dark and or they're whatever. 14, yeah. 14 and it's dark and I'm deciding after careful decision making, like I'm doing less harm by driving this person home yes. than not driving them home. Though, like, talk to a lawyer about that. They would be yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. don't let a client in your car. <laughs> yeah. A similar one, I think, is lending money. My client needs $50 worth of gas, $20 worth of gas. Could see why. In a moment like that, it's very tempting to be like, oh, okay, um, I'll give you a little bit of money. But I like the idea that what we're landing on is that it's not in the egregious things. It's just the behavior. Like there is never a good reason to have sex with your client, no matter how much you weighed the options, right? Mm-hmm. It's bad. It's always bad to steal from your clients. But I do think there are these other much more tricky situations where the behavior is not necessarily that what is good or bad, but it's how readily you went into it. How much consideration you gave it? Did you seek supervision around it? Did you note it in your notes? Look, if there's something that you are doing that you are not willing to write in your notes, I think mm. that's an important thing to pause on. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. 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 This is an interesting conversation because I think something happens in feminist therapy where in terms of note-taking, my notes are very... I mean, you could listen to the notes episode that we have where it's right. like strategic note taking. And so to me, that's not necessarily my my gauge of whether it's good or not, whether it's bad or not, is whether I put it in the notes. But I, but you're right. It's more about the consideration. So, for example, texting a client. I have a couple clients who really like generally I don't like texting clients, yeah. but I have a couple clients who like I send them an email. They'll send me a text back of like, right. And so, yes, we're rescheduling over text. But if I'm doing, if we're doing updates over email or over text, and again, maybe that's yeah. part of the way that you work and there's like informed parameters consent about it, it, there's yeah. parameters, and that's a whole different thing versus mm-hmm. like there's one or two clients that I'm doing text therapy and checking in on how they're doing. I mean, those are, again, can come from a caring place, but playing it fast and loose. Yeah. And I'm responding at 11 PM on Fridays to a non-crisis text because I want to keep having the conversation with my client and we're, you know, I'm enjoying it is very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I think worth pausing on to say, what is this about? And, and even with the notes thing, it's less about the notes specifically and more about like, am I trying to conceal my behavior? Mm -hmm. Could I, what if, could I say, if it's me, could I say it to you, Jordan, and be like, okay, I did this thing and here's right. what my thinking was? Or is it like, no one can ever know this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I know it's bad and I know it's wrong. Let's talk about some other other situations. I'm thinking about re-traumatizing therapists, therapists who force their clients to recount details of their trauma experiences, whether it's for like with the idea that it's going to heal them quote unquote, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. just because they want to know the want details. To. Yeah. Gaslighting, like that didn't happen that way, or like, I'm not sure that that happened. So there are ways in which we we question clients' recounting of things. Maybe there's a very specific 
thing that you're pressing your client on, but a pattern of like never believing your clients when they're telling yeah, a like, story. If you don't believe in microaggressions or you don't believe in systemic racism. So when your client is telling you that they think that they didn't get that job because they're black and you are like, this is just a really negative pattern of thinking for you. I think that that happens a lot, which is like whatever that discounting, not believing the client. If you don't believe in the systems that are hurting them, I don't know that individual, like putting the individual accountability piece on your client all the time. Over attributing internal locus of control can happen where it's like, oh, this is your doing. How harmful is that? This person who has more power and who is trained in this is saying, this is actually your fault. Yeah. And not these other forces that are going around you, that is harm. And it pops up all the time in these weird wellness spaces around like manifestation. And if you want it badly enough, you will get it. And if you're not getting it, it's because you don't want it badly enough. So whatever that thing is, I think that locus of control, but also the merging together of therapy and like other things that are parallel to therapy and bringing them into the same spaces without kind of, first of all, making that clear to your clients, like, hey, I practice through this landscape and that's what I think about things. Or just laying it at your client's feet, like, well, maybe it's not happening because you don't want it badly enough. Sexual assault. A hundred percent. Sexual assault. Somebody was sexually assaulted and it's like, well, you did drink and you did go into that room with that person. Oh, so many people talk about what was traumatizing from their sexual assault as not necessarily, not always the most traumatizing thing is the details of what happened, but how people responded. 100%. And so in that way, when a therapist responds either by not believing or somehow like victim blaming, whether overtly or inadvertently, like it can traumatize clients. Yes. Yeah. And I think that comes up a lot when you have clients who have been repeatedly victimized you see therapists being like, why are they putting themselves in these situations? And instead of processing that with like other therapists or in their own therapy or in supervision, they are subtly suggesting to the client that they shouldn't put themselves in those situations anymore. And why would they do that? And, you know, it's damaging. I also think about therapists who maybe resort to calling the police. Oh, my God. People who freak Um, out when a client is suicidal. I think that we can do more harm breaking confidentiality without thinking because we panic. The person goes into the system and again, ends up further traumatized by these institutions um, when we go in trying to protect clients and does the opposite. One I've seen coming up a lot, and I think it is goes hand in hand with this conversation that we've been having more, which you and I, again, both very much agree with, which is that you need to know your own capacity as a therapist and you need to cancel if you're sick is therapists canceling a lot and like Mm -hmm. consistently. And so that's coming up a lot in the conversation from clients of like, I've had 10 sessions with this person and she's had to cancel and or reschedule six of those sessions. Yeah. And sometimes the day of, sometimes 20 minutes before or has forgotten about them. I've been at her office and she's not there. I've been seeing a lot of that lately too. It -hmm. is bad to consistently cancel without an explanation for your clients, maybe about to expect that. Maybe you have a a, a chronic illness. Are you taking on too many clients if you have to consistently cancel? Mm -hmm. Clients deserve consistency from us. Yeah. 
we have lots of episodes about that, but it is, it is tough when it's not, it's outside of your control as a therapist, right? Like totally. you said, chronic illness or childcare situation, being a caregiver, but it's like, we owe, uh, how do we do that relationally rather than just excusing ourselves? Well, I have kids, yeah, I have and kids and this is what it's like to have kids. And so I absolve myself yeah. from making all these cancellations and being late all the time versus how do I show up for my clients? And how do I have a conversation with my clients? Like, hey, I know it sucks that I've canceled on you so much. That is the piece that I think is also often missing is that therapists are scared to talk to their clients about the mistake that they're making because it feels too raw and too tender and too vulnerable. But I think that's a huge piece of it is if there is something that is going on that is making you not able to show up as your best, you have to talk to your clients about it. I am starting to see a theme, mm -hmm. like an overarching theme in thinking about some of these examples, which is use of power. Yes. Using power to say, this is what this means, telling people what their experience is yeah. or where it's coming from. So like, oh, this is about your mom. Yeah, 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 yeah. And <laughs> we're using their power to be like, this is what we're doing in therapy. There's not like that checking in, being overly directive where we're going, giving advice. Being mad our client doesn't take our advice. Yeah. I told just, you that you should da-da-da and you didn't and now that's why you're here. Yeah. And so there's just this sort of em embodying this power and that can look in so many different ways. I have more power mm -hmm. than you and mm -hmm. that means I dictate what we're doing. I dictate what is true. I say when this is a defense that you have, this is actually your you know, unconscious or this is a unhelpful thinking pattern and yeah. it's something that needs to be adjusted rather than an exploration with the client and does that fit and yeah, like a collaboration, trying to equalize the power. I think that therapists can take the power and run with it. And I think that there are some people who go into the field of therapy because they want that power. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there are bad people who happen to be therapists and are therefore doing really bad therapy. And I know that that is really, in some ways, pushes up against what we think about people as therapists, because I believe all people are capable of change for the most part. And I think there are some people who are just really bad at this job, at doing the parts of this job that are not ego-driven, are not self-centered, but are relationship-centered and are about grace and compassion for our clients and a willingness to continue to be curious. Even when our client is doing something that we don't think is right, that we're going to bump into people who like the power that they have over clients who come in in really delicate and vulnerable states. I think there are therapists who have contempt for their clients. Oh and, my goodness. And yes. we, have, we have an episode where we talk about client, when you don't like a client. And that will happen. We like some clients more than others. It's just a fact of being a human. That's there, the part that is like, we're just human. Yes, that's the yeah. part that's, we're just human. And there are therapists who fundamentally look at their clients like less than, broken, like broken annoying, and yes, needy. This is purposely ableist term, like insane and stupid. Yeah. Like yeah. people see their clients that way. And so and, when when there's this narrative then of mistake making as a norm for therapists, which again, we believe, but we lump all of that in with the normative mistakes that new therapists make, I think it really muddies the water of when we say 
you know, we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. We all need to adjust and learn. We are not saying hating your clients is just a normal mistake to make as a, as a therapist, mm-hmm. sleeping with your clients, stealing from them, telling them what to think, what to believe, telling them they need to convert their sexuality or gender identity. That is not what I'm referring to mm-hmm. when I say we're all human, we're all going to make mistakes. Yep. And I know that that's like a hot button to be pushing, but it feels important to name that. I would like to think that we all sort of agree that having sex with your clients is like makes you a bad therapist. Yes. But some of these other things we're talking about, I think, again, like you could make the mistake and you could learn from it. And so, again, we're not saying, okay, you texted your client, you checked in with your client via text, you're a bad therapist. But there's this pattern. There's a playing fast and loose. We talked about power. I'm also thinking about like super loose boundaries or super rigid yeah and that therapists that fall on either end of that extreme spectrum i think are bad therapists the number one complaint i've heard from clients who have found me but have been in therapy before and are no longer with that therapist is that other therapist talked about themselves the whole time Mm. and that's this fast and loose with boundaries thing of centering themselves centering their story and then clients don't want to stay with them because they're not getting therapy out of that relationship. And mm-hmm. we kind of all leave school knowing that self-disclosure needs to be purposeful. And then something happens to some therapist where it just gets thrown out the window, it feels like. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one of the subtlest ones mm. that is around, say, burnout, around low energy, being distracted. There you go. Those are things that we all might experience from time to time. But some people go into the work, you know, they've maybe been in a very unsustainable nonprofit for a very long time. They're uncaring. They don't listen. Like they're just distracted. They're not really reflecting back accurately what clients are saying. And those are bad therapists. If you're a therapist who is distracted a lot, is thinking about other things, and you're inaccurate in your empathy statements. Uh, I, I agree. And I think there's something here around like, if every time you're with clients, you're experiencing like this harshness inside yourself. I don't know what that is of like annoyed with the client or wishing they'd get to the point or, you know, I think that's a good invitation to check in to go like, what is the caliber of the type of therapy that I'm doing right now? What does that look like? There is a difference between the clients. There is a difference between the therapists who make a mistake, even maybe a a bad one. They didn't Mm -hmm. record a suicide assessment and the client ended up in the hospital and it could have been really bad for them. And they realized, oh my gosh, I didn't do that documentation that I needed to do. Or they lend, I don't know, they lend their client 20 bucks, something. But then they seek supervision. They talk to someone about it. They're like, oh my gosh, I think I erred. They loop back to the client if it's something that the client was aware of and knows about, and they apologize. Then they work to never make that mistake again. That to me is a very different scenario from someone who is just maybe knows it's bad and then is hiding it or doesn't even care that it's bad and is not going to integrate and learn from it. It's it's really sad when the therapists are within these institutions Or wherever you're practicing and it's just an unsustainable situation that you find yourself in. So you're having to see 12 clients and you're just 
not a good therapist because you're not able to show up in the way that yeah. you should. My heart goes out to you. Mm-hmm. I know that it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that we do need to look at ourselves and say, am I doing harm by yeah. seeing 12 clients a day and not really listening and not really caring and maybe giving advice? There's bad therapists because you're harming clients in this egregious way. And then there's just like unskilled therapists, uncaring therapists where you're being ineffective and being an ineffective therapist makes you a bad therapist. Where it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm just not paying attention. I don't care. It is part of our practice to like eventually respond to an inquiry about something from a client. You know what I mean? Like we can't just always ignore clients. We can't not do the paperwork for them. Again, like these stories being shared of like, I emailed my therapist three times, set up another appointment and they never emailed me back. That's a problem. Yeah. Ghosting. Ghosting. If you're a bad therapist, doesn't mean you're forever a bad therapist. I agree. I'm glad we're naming that. Um, Again, I'm not talking about the people who are sleeping with their clients because I think slept with your client. That's really bad. You should probably, Um, you should leave the field. You shouldn't be a therapist anymore. I agree. Is that harsh to say? No. I don't think so either. No, because- your judgment is impaired. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One I didn't think about, but I'm thinking about now is um, therapists going to sessions high or drunk, mm. which happens <laughs> a lot, I think. These behaviors add up to being a bad therapist. But I think that there's also like a bunch of clients saying this therapist wasn't very good. Yeah. And maybe I mean, it, we haven't even yeah. talked about like ineffectual therapy. Yeah. We can do everything right and still maybe not be great at our job. I think that that's just true of any job. But there is kind of this category of like therapists who are just like maybe not, I don't know, sinking into the work with their clients or I don't know, not guiding them effectively. Like not being able to be accurate in your listening Mm -hmm. or in your empathy and like knowing the emotional granularity of something. Yeah. When we've made mistakes, we are going to say when we've done bad therapy. Yeah. When we've done that therapy, like mistakes that I continue to make that I keep trying to shift is um, not responding to emails. Okay. I didn't um, mean to call you out earlier there. No, no. Like respond to your email. <laughs> it's an ongoing problem in my personal life. And often I think that I've responded and I haven't. Yes. That I need to come up with uh, referrals for this person. I meant to look a bunch of things up. And then they're having to send me a follow-up email like, hey, I sent you an email days ago and you haven't responded. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like still I sh- thinking you know. about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that I've done in the past was I put myself on someone's like suicide safety plan. Mm. That's a mistake. Shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. If you work in like private practice and you're not like in a hospital setting or doing DBT with long term clients or something where it's just outside of the scope of your thing, and then subsequently having like 3 a.m. phone calls with mm-hmm. a, a highly suicidal person. Um, or not answering. Well, I always did. But yes, there's the worry, there's always the fear then. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the first call, so but still, I think that's a mistake, like being too accessible, whatever that is. Um, and I would say early on, definitely allowing more texting, even though it was in my consent form that texting was only permitted for logistics reasons, like I have to cancel or can we do 3 p.m. on Friday? 
I still would have, uh, okay, I was playing it fast and loose, just like we're saying, like being mm-hmm. much more laissez-faire about the texting and permitting more of it with some people that now I just would not, I would like immediately bring it up with a client and say like, I noticed that you texted me. I didn't text you back. What was that like? You know, I'm not doing a ton of therapy right now. So it's really hard. It's not that I don't think I'm, I definitely know I'm making mistakes of some kind, but I'm just not doing enough therapy right now to recognize any type of current pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so again, this is not to end on, well, we're all bad therapists, but it's it's to say there are objectively bad things and yeah. we need to hold ourselves accountable. Yes. And it's not it's not just like bad therapists are out there. People who sleep with their clients, they're bad. And I am human. And it's totally. like, yes, we're human and we make egregious mistakes sometimes. And I think we need to look at that. Yes. This is why being in supervision, there's something like uh, of 90% of therapists who sleep with a client, 90% of them were not in supervision, Mm -hmm. right? The majority of people who do the egregious things to clients, there is no oversight built into their professional work and probably on purpose, right? Mm. But if we are very early in our career, building supervision into our practice as a clinician, just as a an expectation that it has to be there if we're a therapist, we are far less likely to do the super bad things because there is someone there who is saying to us, hey, you talk about this client in this particular way. You know, again, you have to be bringing up the client, but I do think just knowing that there are people that you can bounce off ideas, even really tricky ethical ideas, like how many times... Have you and I and and many of our other therapy friends said, hey, this is what happened with a client. Do you think that I need to report that? Mm-hmm. Do you think I need to report that to MCFD or whatever? Or do you, hey, this happened with my client. Do you any any sense of how I should respond in the email? Like just having people there is so huge. I think just having eyes on your work. Even, mm-hmm. if, even if you're not explicitly saying, okay, all the, which I think you should, but just that sense of like, you're not practicing in a bubble. No. That people are seeing your work. Even, um, you know, there's a Patreon episode about clients who talk to each other mm-hmm. and or clients who know each other. And I think that that holds me accountable. I agree. Because I can't make mistakes with one person. Like they'll be able to piece together a pattern of like, oh, Jordan didn't respond to my email. Oh, she didn't respond to mine either. You know, yeah, it's not like a one-off so mistake. It's a pattern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in a corner, in a closet. Yeah, where no one can see me. Where no one can see me and I can do whatever mm-hmm. I want. Yeah. There's more, yeah, eyes on, eyes on, there's a community, a sense of community. And so if you can get a group of people together, sometimes yes. supervision, especially in the beginning, can feel like a lot of money. Um, I think that it's an important investment and that you should absolutely pay for it. But another way of getting more regular eyes on your work is to meet with other therapists. Yeah, peer supervision. Yep, Mm -hmm. and just talk about what's coming up lately. It's very, very powerful. It is. I think the other piece of this, and maybe this is a great place for us to kind of dig into at the end, is that there are bad therapists and there are also really good therapists. There are people who are so good at this job and I don't think that they've had to sacrifice any of their humanness to do that. That we can be fully present in like, I'm a person, I make mistakes, we're just two people here and 
some of those therapists are so good at their jobs. And I've had experiences, I'm sure you have, Jordan, where I've witnessed someone's work and I've Mm -hmm. gone, whoa, this person is very good at this. Absolutely. When I think about some of the students that I've worked with. Yes, me too. Or some of the supervisees that I've worked with. I'm Mm -hmm. like, wow, you are great therapists. And I I tell those people that like you are a great therapist. I'm going to refer people to you. I there's some people just doing really, really good work. And while they're coming and they're coming to supervision, like I did this thing. Right. Or what do I do? Right. And so like you said, we don't have to sacrifice our humanness or our mistake making to be great therapists. Yeah. And so we agree that there is no perfect therapist. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist. But it's okay in your professional work to aim to try to be a really good one. Yeah. Like, I want to be a really good therapist. So meaning to me, that's like collaborating, ethical, ethical, uh, effective, you know, sharing power. Yeah. Yeah. So they're responsive, consistent. uh, I'm curious for those of you who are listening, what you would consider a good therapist. Maybe you can send us an email. Oh, I would love that. Or a DM about what you consider a a good therapist, what makes a good therapist or a great therapist. And it's not just being wise. It's rarely being wise. Yeah. It's rarely being wise because wisdom is kind of like motivation. It just comes and goes fleeting, right? Like there's moments of being in wisdom and moments of not, but it's these other, it's these other much more behavioral things. Oh, I'm really glad we landed here. And hopefully you as listeners are, are hearing that while we were in it today, really in the poop of like bad therapy exists, awesome therapy also exists. And the transformation that happens when someone has had a horrible therapy experience and then they start therapy with an incredible therapist, that is a really amazing experience for clients. I hope you come to our workshop. It's May 31st, one week from when this comes out. We hope that you can join us. You can find the tickets through the link in our in our bio on Instagram, or you can just search Eventbrite, Edge of the Couch, and it should come up on Google. We want to hear your thoughts as always. Feel free to send us an email at connect at edgeofthecouch.com or send us a DM at edgeofthecouchpod on Instagram. Here at Jane, we know that a seamless client experience can go a long way. It can be the difference between a client getting the care they need or not. Jane makes it easy for both you and your clients to meet online or in person, whether you're meeting with an individual client, a couple, or a family. Since telehealth is completely integrated with Jane, your clients will be able to receive reminders for their appointments with a link directly to their session. No need to send a separate email. When it comes to charting, Jane allows you to copy session notes from one client to another within the same appointment saving you admin time. And we know billing can be a hassle, especially for couples and family sessions. That's why Jane lets you assign one client to an invoice, making billing a little easier for everyone. Don't let managing your practice hold you back from doing what you love, helping people. Head to jane.app forward slash mental health to learn more about Jane's telehealth options and book a one-on-one demo. Thanks 
for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at connect at edgeofthecouch.com to tell us what you think, ask a question, or let us know what type of episode you'd love to hear. You can even send us a voice note for us to play in a future episode. You can support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing the show with a friend, or supporting us on Patreon. Join us next time at The Edge of the Couch. Thank you.